0: We prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God, um, would you join me in prayer? Our Lord and Master, illumine our hearts with the pure light of divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to understand your gospel, implant in us the fear of your blessed commandments, and trample down all of our worldly desires that we might live in the Spirit, thanking you and doing the things that please you. For you are the light of our life, and unto you we ascribe all glory. For you live forever with the Father, who is everlasting, and with the Holy Spirit, who is all holy and the giver of life, now and forever, unto the ages of ages. Hallelujah. Amen. If you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians as we continue our study in Colossians. We'll be um, in chapter 1 today, uh, verses 21 through 23. So that's Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Uh, as you turn there... Uh, Listen to the words of the living God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the living God, and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So as we've been going through this uh, epistle, Paul's epistle, his letter to the church at Colossae. Um, In these past two weeks, we have focused on what many have referred to as the Christ hymn. Uh, And they refer to it as the Christ hymn because verses um, 15 through 20 are in a uh, a lyrical format or a poetic type of a format. So uh, many have concluded that perhaps this was a hymn, and I would say that if it is a hymn, it was a hymn that Paul wrote. And it is uh, perhaps one of the most profound statements about Christ in the Bible. Let me repeat that. verses Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 are perhaps some of the most profound words in the Bible about the person of Christ. And so Paul opens this letter, and he, he, and specifically his opposition to the false teachers in Colossae, not by poking holes in their theology, but by presenting the truth of Christ as the one exalted above all. So Paul is going to address some errors that have crept into the church at Colossae. His first attack, if you will, his first defense against these errant thoughts is not to poke holes and show how foolish those, are, are, those ideas are. He'll get to that. But the very first thing he does is present Christ as supreme over all. That Christ is preeminent. And so this Christ hymn is a picture of the supremacy of of christ overall so that's where we've been i would encourage you if you missed those we have those uh recorded online you can you can access them through our website you can find the entire service on youtube you can find the uh the sermon only at sermon.net so we have a number of different ways for you to access that material and i would encourage you to um To hear what Paul has to say about the person of Christ, it is um, some of the most, like I said, some of the most glorious words in all of the Bible. That's where we've been. So one might be amazed at the theological truths presented in the Christ hymn and be in awe of the person of Jesus Christ and yet wonder, well then, what real difference does all of that make? That's some great theological truths. You've presented Christ as preeminent of all. That's awesome. (coughs) Why does that matter? Does this have any impact in the... The society in which I live doesn't have any impact on me personally. In today's text, verses 21 through 23, is where theological truths meet the average person in Colossae and by extension, us as well. Verses 21 through 23 is where theological truths of, of 15 through 20 meet us in our daily lives. We are going to see today the probably one of the most profound declarations of the gospel. Following some of the most profound words about the person of Jesus Christ, today we are going to see the gospel, that is the good news of the preeminent Christ, declared so clearly and so succinctly, um, I pray that we leave changed individuals. In these verses, we will discover, as I said, a clear presentation of the good news. And let me say this, that only one who is preeminent is able to remedy the problem that is going to be addressed in verses 21, well, especially in verse 21. Paul is going to present us with a problem. He is going to present us with a solution. And the solution could only be remedied by one who is preeminent. So Paul begins with the Christ hymn. Christ is preeminent. Then he is going to show us. And here's why that's important. Because Christ can remedy the problem that befalls all of humanity. Only one who is preeminent is able to fix mankind's problem. So Paul is going to present the problem He's going to present the remedy for that problem and then the purpose, why. So here's the problem, here's the fix, and here's why, or the the purpose for the fix. And then he will conclude with an admonition for the church at Colossae and you and I to remain strong and unmoved and stable in our faith. In the face of strong opposition, Paul will encourage his readers and you and me To stand stable and unmoved in the good news of Jesus Christ. So we could put it this way. Paul's going to present it this way. Who you were, what Christ has done, the goal for which it was done, and then an encouragement. Who you were, what Christ has done, the goal for which it was done, and then an encouragement. And so we've entitled this, The Hope of the Gospel These are taken, these words, this title is taken directly from the text, The Hope of the Gospel. So let's look at uh, our text today, and we're going to begin with what I've titled Past, Present, and Future. This is in verses 21 through 22. Let me give you the setting again. Maybe a little of this is redundant, but you should be aware of this. Um, We have seen the exalted Christ and what we want to understand is that the exalted Christ is more than an object of theological discussion. That is the exalted Christ acts. He is not just an object to be contemplated. Well, that's fine. We should contemplate the risen Christ. But he is more than an object of contemplation. The, the risen Christ, the ascended Christ acts. He does stuff. He intervenes fully in an area that any lower being would, would be unable to meet. So remember, some of the false teachers in Colossae are saying that Christ is this lower being. He is not divine. Or that there are other divine beings out there um, alongside of Christ who can also help you in your journey through this uh, challenging world that we live in. And Paul is saying, no. Only Christ is the preeminent one. He is the only one whom we can rely on. He fully intervenes in an area, namely salvation, that no other creature is sufficient to deal with. He does what only God can do. In other words, the chasm between God and man is such that only God can span it. The chasm between God and man is so great that only God can span that chasm. And Christ, and so we are going to present Christ as the preeminent one, the one who forms a bridge between God and man. And that was something only God can do. So, past, present, and future. Let's look a little bit at the past. And you... Who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. There's the past. You, who were at one time alienated, hostile in mind doing evil deeds. This is who you were. You, Colossians, you were once alienated. And let me be precise alienated from God. You, at one time, Colossians, were alienated. From God. that The idea of alienation here is that you were outside of God's blessed purposes. You were outside of God's blessing. You were outside of God's covenant. You were strangers. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 18 and 19 give us a, a good understanding of this. He says this, Speaking of the Gentiles, which the Colossians would be uh, included in that group, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is who the Colossians were. You were alienated from the life of God because of the hardness of your heart. You were callous. You've given yourselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is who you were, and you were once alienated from God. At one time, the Colossians were outside of the sphere of God's blessing and favor. First Peter chapter one or chapter two verse ten. I'm going to kind of chop this verse up, but don't worry. I'm going to come back to it, and I'm going to fill in all the all the details. Uh, Well, not all of them, but a few of them. First Peter chapter two verse ten. Peter writes this. Once you were not a people. He's he's. The people he's writing to, you were once not a people. You once did not belong to God. Once you had not received mercy. That's who you were. You were not the people of God. You had no claim on the mercies of God. This alienation is not unique to the Colossians. This is the natural state of all humanity. In fact, once again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all we, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. We all once lived there carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the natural state of humanity. This is not unique to the Colossians. You and I at one time were alienated from God. We were not His people. We did not reside in the covenant blessings of God. We were not partakers of the mercies of God. We were by nature children of wrath. You can also see John chapter 3 for this. And hence, the need for God's intervention. This is where you were. You Colossians, you were once... I could describe you in this way. Now, I will say this. The thought of alienation from God is foreign to many today. After all, we are, quote, God's children. We're all God's children. We are told... That is a popular idea, but I'm not sure that it aligns accurately with Scripture. It is true that we are all God's creation. Which means that every human being on on the earth should be understood as a creation of God and given dignity and respect and, and, and value as a human person. We are all God's creation, but we do not all belong to His family. We are not all His children. To be declared a child of God, one must be adopted by God into His family. Because why? We were alienated. We were not the people of God. In order to become a part of His family, God would need to adopt us. In fact, we we see this very... Adoption, if you will, taking place in chapter 1, verse 13 of Colossians. We see this, where Paul writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were in a state of slavery, alien, alienated from God, but He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's who you were. You were a creation of God but alienated from Him. Now you are children of God by the work of Christ. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, to be part of his creation, to be part of his family, those are two different categories. To be part of his his family requires a work of God. To be part of God's family requires God doing something to bring you out of your alienation and into his family. You, Colossians, this is where you were. You were alienated. Paul is going to continue to paint an uncomfortable portrait of the Colossians and of us as well. You were not only alienated, but here's why you were alienated. You were hostile in mind and evil in deed. This is what brought about this alienation. Hostile in mind and evil in deeds. That is hostile in mind. Your minds were opposed to God. This speaks not only of their thoughts but a reference to their disposition. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. We read this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their minds were opposed to the things of God. They were characterized By their anti-God thinking. It's not that they are unaware of God, they knew God. But they oppose him in their minds. And they did not honor God as God. A great passage of text is in Second Kings um, chapter 17, verse 15. We see I wouldn't be surprised if Paul gets some of his theology from Second Kings 17. 15, they despised his statutes. Let me just go up to 14. But they would not listen but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised His statutes and His covenant that He made with their fathers and the warnings that He gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not be like them. They despised His statutes. They despised the covenant of God. They did not believe in God. You were hostile in mind. You were alienated from God. What what brought about this alienation? You despised God. And evil in deeds. Their actions were evil. Again, we... Uh, See this in Romans chapter 1, I read 21, but 22 um, and following. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They became idolaters. They began to worship everything that was not God. They worshiped themselves, they worshiped their arrogance, they worshiped others, they worshiped celebrity, they worshiped many other things, but they did not worship God because they were hostile in mind and they became evil and that's then expressed in the things that they do. Now, some may be asking, it's like, well, wait a second. Okay, that's like really bad people, people in prison. That makes sense. But what about good people? Well, sp- Scripture speaks of people who are um, moral. We think, what about good people? I mean, my neighbor isn't that really, he doesn't have any idols that he's sitting down worshiping and he's not, you know, I don't know, murdering anybody or anything like that. In fact, um He and his family, they're a great family. They they love one another. They're generous towards those who are in need. What about good people? Scripture, again, speaks of these individuals. I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 1 through 3, where Paul goes through those who are corrupt and those who are morally good people, who are socially acceptable, whom are our neighbors, and he concludes with this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They, they knew God, but they did not honor him as God. And they turned to other means to be accepted by God. They thought by their own goodness that God would receive them. And that is an abject rejection of what God has revealed. John chapter 3 would be another one. Nicodemus, he was a good man. And Jesus said, Yeah, you need to be born again. The rich young ruler, good master, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus said, keep all the commandments. And he said, I've done it. This was a good man. This was a good man. He kept all the commandments. Even if you think he's kind of... "Mm." Exaggerating things. He is what we would consider a good person. But Jesus lays on him a little bit more than he had asked for. And the disciples were amazed. They're saying, if this man can't be saved, then who can be saved? This guy's rich. He's obviously blessed by God. He is a ruler. He is obviously blessed by God. And you're telling me, Jesus, that this good man who keeps the commandments isn't saved? That's what you're telling me? So we see the Scripture talking about good, moral people, our neighbors, the people who are serving alongside of us, um, our co-workers. The conclusion is this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you, Colossians, are alienated, hostile in mind, evil in deeds. This is your past. This is who you were. So let me give you a brief summary of this section. Thoughts and deeds were corrupt in the eyes of God. This is speaking of the totality of man's corruption. People who are not regenerate are not okay. People think, well, I'm okay. I, I, I'm a nice person. I, I, I take care of my family and, and I, I, I take care of those who are in need around me. I'm a good neighbor. I work hard. I'm okay. Paul and the rest of Scripture says that you're not Okay. Paul paints a very dark picture of the state of the person outside of Christ. And this dark condition serves at least two purposes. The first purpose why does Paul paint such a dark picture? It serves many purposes, but I'll give you two. First of all, it's the truth. People need to know where they stand in order to feel the gravity of their condition. People need to know the truth. If we lie to them and tell them that everything's good when it's not, we have not not loved them. So Paul paints a dark picture because it's the truth. The The second reason that Paul paints this dark picture is to make much of Christ. Seeing from where we have been rescued makes Christ more glorious. If your sin is small... You only need a small Savior. The one who is forgiven much, loves much. So Paul is showing our darkness that, man, I need, I need to be forgiven of a bunch. Ah, yes. Because the one who is forgiven much, loves much. And this is where he's going to go. He wants us to love the preeminent Christ. He wants us to love Him more than life itself. So this is where you were. That's the past. Let's talk about the present. But now. Verse 22. And you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body. I'll paraphrase that. But now. That's who you were. But now what has Christ done? The actions of Christ... First of all, notice this. But now, that he's going to talk about the actions of Christ. And this is the actions of Christ towards who? Good people? No. Corrupt people. This is how Christ acts towards those who are hostile in mind and evil in deeds. You might think, well, what's he going to do? He's going to throw a lightning bolt down on them. He's going to snuff them out. He's going to make life miserable. But now... He has reconciled you. That's the present. That's who you were. Now Christ has reconciled you. And by the way, reconciliation would be the opposite of alienation. You were alienated. Now just the opposite. You've been reconciled. That'd be a good name for a church. (laughs) If you knew of a church called Reconcile, you should go there. But now you have been reconciled, and so reconciliation is to heal a broken relationship, to cease enmity. Those alienated, you were once alienated and hostile in mind and evil in deed. You have now been brought near, and it is Christ who is the initiator of this new status. Those who are hostile um, retain their hostility until they are acted on by Christ. Romans chapter, Romans chapter five, verse six. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did he reconcile? Those who were alienated, those who hated him, those who despised him, those who were hostile in mind and evil in deed, those who were opposed to him. These are the ones he has brought in and made his friends and cease that hostility. The work of Christ overcomes the alienation between God and man because of man's sin. Alienation, by the way, makes reconciliation necessary. And that reconciliation was effected through the work of Christ at Calvary. Paul begins this letter with grace and peace. Peace is secured by the grace of God and it is effected by Christ's sacrificial work. And we'll talk very briefly, we'll talk about that as we go on. You have now been reconciled. We'll talk about how. I told you I'd get back with that Second Peter passage and here it is. Once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy, let me receive, read the entire verse. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is exactly where Paul's going. This is who you were. You were not a people. You had not received mercy, but now through Christ reconcilia- recon- reconciling work, you have now been brought near. It is alienation that makes the work of reconciliation necessary. Well, then the question is, how did this reconciliation take place? Paul is very blunt. In his body of flesh by his death. How did he reconcile you? In his body of flesh by his death. I think here, it's interesting because I think Paul could have easily just said, um, uh, reconciled by his death. He includes in his body, and I think that this is a jab, if you will, at the false teachers in Colossae who would have denied the humanity of Christ. They would have said Christ did not exist in bodily form. The very first heresy in the Christian church was not a denial of the divinity of Christ, but a denial of the humanity of Christ. It was taught by the false teachers in Colossae. So Paul just puts that in. Christ was, incarnate, was God incarnate. He lived in the flesh. He dealt with the limitations of humanity. And he, as the incarnate, Jesus Christ incarnate, died on a cross. By his death. In his body, by his death. Once again... <clears throat> Romans chapter 5 verse 9, we'll have a lot of Romans passages and a lot of Ephesians passages, but Romans chapter 5 verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You have been reconciled by his death. The death of Christ is a necessary aspect of our acceptance with God. It is what brings peace and makes adoption possible. Peace with God is critical, but alienation must be addressed. Our crime against God was not small. It warranted a death sentence. Jesus bore that death sentence for us. And so you were once alienated, but Christ has reconciled you by his death. in so summary, <laughs> the means to reconcile us was real and physical. That is, it was in his body and it was total by his death. So that's who you were, that's the past, this is the present, this is who you are now, this is what Christ has done now, now the purpose, future. For what purpose would Christ do that? What does he have to gain from it? in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. He did this so that He might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. The goal of Christ's atoning death here is made clear. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. We read this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways Inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ died so that you would be able to be presented before him. I'm going to say, certainly now we are, present, we are before Christ, holy and blameless, right now. You stand, if you are in Christ, you stand holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Right now. Because your holy and blameless and above reproachness is in heaven. Seated at the right hand side of the Father. This does not deny, but I would also say there is a future day The final judgment where you will be presented before Christ and you're saying, I wonder what he's going to think. Here's why he died. So that he, you might be presented before him on that last great day, holy, blameless, and above reproach. The work of the cross was sufficient. Let me add that this, the fact that we are wholly blameless and above reproach, not only now, but in the future, does not deny any sinful struggles one has in the present life, but the certainty, power, and finality of Christ's atoning work. In other words, yeah, we're going to still struggle, but Christ's work is certain, sufficient, and final. It does what it's supposed to do. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 ten and ten fourteen we read this and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all you've been sanctified by Christ's one-time offering it doesn't need to be repeated verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this is really good news. Past, present, future, Christ will present us at the future judgment, not as hostiles, but as friends, not as our accuser, but as our advocate. The one-time work of Christ on Calvary has a lasting and eternal effect. I've titled this The Hope of the Gospel. I pray that I have stimulated some hope. Then the last verse. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, this kind of presents a little bit of a challenge All of these things, if indeed you continue in the faith. The question here then is, is Paul, are Paul's words words of certainty or are they words of uncertainty? In other words, assuming the truth of what was previously stated, can one be confident? that one is going to be steadfast and immovable and above reproach and all of these things and all of the things we just talked about, will they actually be steadfast and, and, and hold true? Is Paul now introducing a little bit of uncertainty? In other words, well, you can't really be certain of everything I just said. Let there be a little bit of doubt here because maybe you're not quite there. I don't think that there is uncertainty at all in this statement. And I won't get into all of the grammar, but we, um, Paul uses this same phrasing a number of times throughout his, his epistles, not to talk about uncertainty of what's going to happen, but rather certainty. In other words, this we can be certain of these things. A Church on Randall Place, we teach. That Christ is not only the means to save you, that Christ alone is not only the means to save you, but he, he also provides the means to secure you to the end. We reject the idea that if Christ died for us, it doesn't matter if one has faith or lives as though he or she is still alienated from Christ. We would not say that, well, I've received Christ so I can do whatever I want. We would reject that idea but we would say this if Christ has called you if, you if God has called you in Christ not only will you believe but you will also continue to believe God provides the means to save you and the means to secure you to the end a person perseveres because God perseveres us we see that in John 10 Romans 8 1 Peter 1 and so this is not a statement of Uncertainty. Well, all these things are true if you just keep working hard. I hope you make it. Christ saved you and now you're kind of on your own. Go for it, man. I'm going to cheer you on. No. Christ is going to enable us to stand firm until the end. Unmoved. God provides what is necessary to finish. The reality Here is that there are false teachers in Colossae. So don't believe them. They are going to come and seek to persuade you. They are going to seek to draw you away. They are going to come with philosophical arguments and uh, convincing testimonies. Don't believe them. Don't believe the false teachers. Don't be persuaded from the gospel. Not shifting, don't be shifted from the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel has been emphasized in the preceding verses. In our natural state, we were hostile to Christ in both thought and deed. We are outside the realm of his favor, but he took the initiative to repair this broken relationship. The means was his offering of himself as a sacrifice For our sin, the innocent for the guilty, that we might stand before him holy and blameless during this life and also on the day of judgment. Paul encourages his readers to be unmoved from this truth. And I would encourage you, Church on Randall Place, be unmoved from that. You are going to hear in the world we live, there are going to be many voices giving you all sorts of different ideas. Be unmoved. Paul reiterates the universality of the gospel, where he says this, which is the gospel that you heard, which has been being been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I think there's a bit of hyperbole. I don't think that Paul at this point believed that the gospel had been preached to every single creature under heaven. But I think the idea here is that there is one message of good news, and it is applicable to the entire world, both then and now. That gospel is effective to everybody in the Roman Empire, everybody who lived anywhere in the world at that time, whether it was what we call South America or Africa or the Russian area, Asia. The gospel was applicable to everybody. It is universal. It is not... a um, a Middle Eastern thing or a Western thing. It is the truth for all people. It is applicable to the entire world, both then and now. So there's our our hope of the gospel. We've seen the past, we've seen the present, we've seen the future. And we have seen an encouragement. Stand firm. Don't be swayed. You're saying, I don't have the strength to stand firm. You didn't have the strength to be saved. And God still enabled you to be saved. You may not have the strength to stand. He will do what you cannot do for yourself. So I'll conclude with this. The hymn of verses 15 through 20 has now been given its proper application. Christ, who is preeminent over all, is also preeminent over mending the broken relationship that naturally exists between men and God. Let me repeat that. Christ, who is preeminent over all, is also preeminent over mending the broken relationship that naturally exists between man and God. The chasm that has been created by our natural enmity toward God can only be Be resolved by one who is supreme over all. That chasm between us and God is too great. It will only be resolved by God. God is the only one who has the ability to span the breach between us and Him. The problem is greater than any man, angel, or created being could solve. It was a God sized problem alienated, hostile in mind, evil in deeds. It was a God-sized problem and it required God himself to bring the remedy and he did. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Father God, we give you praise and we give you thanks for this good news. We rejoice this day and we are humbled under the fact that you have done such a thing, not for your friends, but those who are hostile towards you. We sought our own, but you, in your loving kindness, pursued us, took the penalty that we deserved, so that we might stand before you, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Lord, help us to stand firm in this for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing.